The scripture reading today is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have told us in Scripture, in words that our Lord Jesus himself used, that we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So may your word dwell in us richly and produce the fruits of righteousness which you alone can bring to pass within and through our lives and in and through our community, the church in the world that you love and to which you sent your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me ask at this time that you take out the insert that you have in your bulletin. You'll find uh, that uh, in a few moments or two, I'll be going through some of the details that are actually there in that insert. Last Sunday, as we looked together at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I focused on Jesus' repeated call, wherever possible for us, to heal relationships, where relationships have gone wrong, to be his hands and his feet to bring, feet to bring healing to those relationships, for us to be the first people to take the first step to go. It's not anybody else's responsibility, it's our responsibility as his followers. Without our asking for it, God sends his Son into the world to reconcile us to God. God takes the first step. We've been called to take that first step in a world of broken relationships with others. Whether it's our fault or not, not easy to do. Confessing that we are in the wrong when it is our fault, apologizing, that's hard enough. But then there's the other side of the coin as well, and that's offering forgiveness when it's somebody else's fault, or at least in our minds, it's somebody else's fault. The offering of forgiveness. But this is not only Paul's summons to us in the passage of Scripture from Colossians that we just heard. We are to forgive one another as the Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. His life and his death has forgiven us. But it's fundamental in what Jesus teaches 
in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the focal point of our studies uh, this winter and spring in our preaching. In Matthew chapter 6, 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's Gospel chapter 6, this is where we find the Lord's Prayer that we pray every Sunday. It's in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And so verse 9 of Matthew 6 says, pray then like this, says Jesus. And then we get to the middle of the prayer, as many of you know, and at verse 12, we read, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then Jesus adds something at the end of the prayer in the 15th verse of Matthew chapter 6, some of the scariest words in all of Scripture. Jesus says, but if you do not forgive the trespasses of others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. If you do not forgive, there is no forgiveness from God. So, this morning, that's what I want us to think about. Our forgiveness, our ability to forgive, the energy we need, the rationale we need to listen to Jesus' words, and to be agents not just of reconciliation, but of forgiveness as well. This is something, of course, we all desperately need in a real world with real people, real particular human beings. I love the words of Edna St. Vincent Millay, who picks up on words that uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky used when she says, I've got no problem loving humankind. I have no problem loving people in general. It is just particular people that I cannot stand. And I think that's probably the truth, or at least it exposes the truth. Feeling good about people in general is one thing, but particular people, real people with real names, which identifies us as individuals, well, they're the ones who rub us the wrong way. They're the ones who step on our toes or stand in the middle of our path. They hurt us or they humiliate us, and they usually do so at exactly the wrong moment, or they violate our expectations or the trust that we have worked so hard to place in them at the very moment when we need them most, they let us down. And often, they have no clue what they're doing. They go on obliviously about their lives. And sometimes this pain is complicated by the fact that it's not us who've been left down, let down, but someone we love. They're the ones who've been hurt in some way. And and we're sort of just a little out of the picture, so we can't do anything about it. And that increases the pain and our sense of suffering when somebody we love is hurt. For 25 years, Mary Zakarian could not forget, could not forgive a man who had hurt her father. His name was Mr. Andrew, and he had mocked her father. Her father was an, an Armenian immigrant. He always spoke with a heavy accent. He ran a tailor shop. And she tells a story like this. In those days, she says, Mr. Andrew was a proud dresser. The creases in his trousers had to be the sharpest and the straightest, and his suits wrinkle-free. If father didn't do a perfect pressing job, Mr. Andrew tightened his lip, raised his chin, threw the suit on the counter, and pointed to the wrinkle. But even though Mr. Andrew constantly spewed criticisms, Dad treated him with courtesy. How are you, Mr. Andrew? Dad would ask in his heavily accented English. Mr. Andrew never answered. Can't you write that ticket any faster? I don't have all day, you know. I do my best, Dad answered one day. I moved close to Dad, my anger boiling. You write the ticket, Mr. Andrew snapped, turning to me. I can't wait for him. After Mr. Andrew left that day, Dad, sensing my outrage, said, Mary, 
He just doesn't realize what he's doing. He'll learn someday. But I had no sympathy for Mr. Andrew. I wanted to hurt him doubly since my father refused to do so. Every time I wrote his name on a ticket, my resentment was written deeper and deeper into my own heart. Just once, Lord, I prayed, just once, let me make Mr. Andrew feel the way he made Dad feel. How easy it is to let bitterness fester and not to forgive and to allow such bitterness to carry on in our souls. How in the world, though, do we do the opposite? How can we change? How can we listen to what Jesus has to say and show mercy and forgiveness? If it's that critical for us to know the forgiveness of God, for us to show mercy ourselves, how can we show such forgiveness as this? How do we become like the incredible witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ, who forgave Dylan Roof, for example, after the June 17th 2015 slaughter of nine people at a Bible study at Emmanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, just because they were blank. Reporter Rashan Ali writes these words in USA Today. She says about the event, only 48 hours after having lost mothers, sisters, sons, husbands, and wives, their loved ones appeared in court for Ruth's bond hearing. And what transpired was something no one could have anticipated. It was the first time any of them would come face to face with the perpetrator of the crime. And the judge presiding over Ruth's bond hearing invited them to make a statement, if they so wished. First up was Nadine Collier, who lost her mother, Ethel Lance. She said, I forgive you. Fighting back tears, she said, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again but I forgive you, have mercy, I'd, I have mercy on your soul. Another family member, Chris Singleton, who lost his mother and who was not in the courtroom quite independently did the same thing. He said, the narrative of forgiveness is that it means that you're weak, you're submitting, but I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm going to be upset forever about whatever it is that has happened. So I don't know the exact principles that the members of the Emmanuel Amy Church had in their minds that they relied on that enabled them in such a remarkable way to forgive. But this morning what I want us to do in the time remaining is to share four biblical principles, four Jesus' foundational statements, as it were, that I suspect were ingrained and are ingrained in their souls and it should be bedrock for every single one of us as we seek to follow our Lord Jesus and to put into practice the words that he taught, empowering us, enabling us to rise above ourselves and to have the courage to forgive when our lives are stuck, when our lives are being dragged down, when we, in fact, are becoming the people we do not want to be, the power to forgive. The first foundation that I want to share with you of forgiveness from a biblical point of view, and there are verses of Scripture for each of these that you might want to memorize, and I hope you will take home with you those sermon notes. The first Scripture that I want to share, which provides the first foundation, is quite simply this, that we, are, we too are sinners. We too are sinners. They are sinners. They are sinning against us quite abhorrently right here and now. 
but truth of the matter is that we too are sinners, and we are capable of doing things to others that they may not like as well. Scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just some, but all. Without fail, every single one of us. We are all in the same boat. Foundational Christian premise. Something we know, not first of all because of our behavior or our self-perception, by the way, but it's something we know because of what God says to us through what Jesus does for us through the cross that stands above us every Sunday when we gather for worship. It's the cross which tells us that we are sinners in need of mercy and that without the death of the Son of God, our sins cannot be forgiven. But they are forgiven. But they are real. And we know this because of the cross. The cross should speak to us, not just as a symbol from the past, but every time we enter the sanctuary, and in a sense it does, because at the beginning of our worship, we speak about the confession of sins and then the declaration of pardon, all based upon this cross above my head. Your sin and my sin was so serious that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to atone for them. That is the truth. Not our comparison of our lives with other people. Not whether or not we've had a really quite a good day or quite a good week. But the knowledge that comes to us from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's foundation number one. We two are in the same boat. We need forgiveness too. Well, they need it. We are all sinners together. Hopefully, that's not a crippling truth. Sometimes for some people, it is so crippling that they do nothing else. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. What do I do now? No, the second truth is actually tied in with the cross of Jesus Christ and takes us from our heads bowed to incredibly our heads lifted up because the same cross which says we are sinners tells us of the love of God which will never, ever change. Now solidified in history and, as it were, dug into the earth, it tells us that God, and this is our second verse from John chapter 3, so loved the world that he gave his son for us that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life no matter what our sin. It cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the cross is the sign of that. And once again, it's not about how we feel. I don't feel that God loves me today. That is simply not true. The cross tells us the truth about the love of God and nothing, not our feelings or anything else, can change that knowledge and how critical this is for us to be able to forgive others, to know that we have been loved and embraced by God. For example, when somebody does something to us, they may treat us like dirt. They may treat us as if we have no dignity and no worth. And we feel that keenly in our souls. And at that very moment, when we don't want to forgive because we have been brought so low, the cross lifts us up and says, there is nothing they can do or say to me which will take away my dignity and my self-worth. God gives it to me and demonstrates it by the cross. And we need to know this love poured into us as well in order to pour it out to others. If the well is empty, there is nothing to give. But if the well is filled with the love of God, there's a chance that we might be able to share that with others. In psychological terms, not in Christian terms, but just in general psychological terms, John Steinbeck, 
put it like this. He said, most people do not like themselves at all. They distrust themselves. They put on masks and pomposities. They quarrel and boast and pretend and are jealous because they do not like themselves. To put it in Christian terms, they don't know that they are eternally loved. If we could learn to like ourselves even a little, he says, maybe our cruelties and angers might melt away. Maybe we would not have to hurt one another just to keep our ego chins above water. Where does our true ego come from? The love of God made known to us in Christ despite the fact that we are sinners. Both of those are foundations for our ability to forgive others. The third foundation for forgiveness that I want to, to share that comes from the scriptures is this, the belief that God's justice will ultimately prevail. The belief that God's justice will ultimately prevail. We may or may not get justice this side of heaven, but ultimately, in God's time, which often is not our time, justice and fairness and what is right will indeed come. Let me put it like this. Belief in God's judgment is important. But the word judgment can just as readily be translated as justice. The belief in God's justice is important. The final judgment is not just about an angry God judging all kinds of people. It is about a righteous and fair God who sorts out all the unfairnesses and injustices in the world so that we say, at last, justice and fairness prevail. That's the ultimate justice of God. That's what Jesus will do when he comes to judge, bring justice to the living and to the dead. And on this justice, we depend. I may not be able to get it, and that sometimes is why we do not forgive. But if we know that God will give it to us in the end, sometimes we can let go, which is precisely what Jesus did. And this leads us to our third verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, who speaks of Jesus like this. He says, in a wonderful verse, Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. He entrusted himself into the hands of God who would sort it all out in the end. Thank goodness. He trusted God in that, because through that, we are forgiven. So those are the first three principles. And then a fourth principle or foundation to empower forgiveness is quite simply this, that more often than not, the person who's done something against us or left undone something they ought to have done, that person actually may not know what they are doing, or we may not understand what they are doing. We live in a complex world, and understanding each other breaks down, as do our relationships, very easily indeed. Remember Jesus' cry, and this is our first, fourth scripture verse, Luke chapter 23 from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not knowing what you do is not an excuse, by the way. It doesn't excuse people, but it may empower us to offer forgiveness to another when this comes into the soul of our being. Author and pastor Dr. Gary Chapman has sold over 20 billion copies of his book, The Five Love Languages. If you've not read it, I recommend it to you. 
It's a book which primarily speaks about marriage, but the implications go way beyond marriage. He speaks about the ability to forgive and not to forgive based on how we read each other and the languages of love that we speak to one another. And he says very often in a marriage, but it's true in other situations, this language here, it may be English, this language here, it may be English, but actually we're speaking two different languages and we just don't understand what the other is saying. Let me share some of the love languages that he speaks about. You'll get the hang of it. One person grows up in a house where words of affirmation are the key sign of love. Just say something, and ah, that's just what I needed to say. But somebody else grows up in another household, and those words are just mere words. Those words mean nothing. They are just words. Two different languages. In one household, somebody has taught that acts of service are ways of showing love. But in another household, it's just sit down, be still. No need to do a thing at this moment. That's how you show your love for me. And some families' love is shown by giving quality time to another. Just being there is what's important. Other households, and this is the reverse of what I just said before, you got to do something. You just, you just have to do something to show the love. In some families, it's the giving of gifts that displays love. It's Valentine's Day. Simple gift will show love. To the other person, oh, that was a waste of money. A little trivial. Don't spend your money on that. It's just not worth it. In one house, it's physical touch that matters. Just a hug, just a touch, and it means just the world. To another person, don't touch me until we sort this out. You get the picture. Two different people, they love, but they show love in different ways. So often, if we put ourselves well into the shoes or into the love language of another, ah, there'll be some relief and we'll find the power to forgive what at first we could not forgive. None of this is easy. Taking time to understand another was hard work. Believing in God's ultimate justice that it will come is hard to do at the moment when we are in pain. Knowing that God loves us when we just don't feel like it at all and turning to the cross and saying, this is the truth, that takes a, an act of faith repeated day after day. And two, to say, I'm a sinner. And without the death of the Son of God, my sins would not be atoned for. All of these are hard. They are hard, but we have been called to do them as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ who summons us in the prayer we say and that he taught, who summons us in the stories that he taught to forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven. And what of Mary Zakarian, whom I mentioned at the beginning, and Mr. Andrew, who taunted her father? Well, she completes the story by saying this, 25 years later, I bumped into him again, she says, I saw him in the drugstore, now an old man stooped over, squinting at a bottle in his hand. It was Mr. Andrew. I have him cornered, I chuckled as I briskly walked toward him. Now's my chance. Hello, Mr. Andrew, I said. Remember me? I'm Mary. You used to come into my father's tailor shop, remember? A pair of roomy eyes looked up at me. You remembered my name, he asked. I was ready to deliver the coup de grace, but before I could, he asked, can you tell me what's on this bottle? I'm looking for eye drops. I can't see so well anymore. 
Now, she says to herself, now he wants me to help him after the way he treated my father. He handed me the bottle as I stretched out my hand to take it. My eyes caught his again. No iciness in his gaze anymore. No arrogance. Just an old man pleading for help. I put the bottle back on the shelf and found the one he was looking for. I'm 81. I'm not what I used to be, he said. And at that moment, she says, something changed within me. I put my arms around him in a soft embrace. You'll be fine, I said. In a flash, my father's words came back to me. He doesn't realize what he's doing. And I, until this moment, I hadn't realized what my own behavior had become and was doing to me. Mr. Andrews smiled. I didn't think anyone remembered my name anymore, he said. He hobbled away, and I prayed. Thank you, Lord, for transforming my bitterness into understanding. It was a lesson that my father had known and one that I learned in the nick of time. Let us pray. Holy God, you shower your mercy on us again and again. Help us to reflect that mercy in all that we think and say and do. Amen.